0: G'day, and welcome to the 2019 Fremantle Press podcast series. My name is Holden Shepherd, and I am the current winner of the City of Fremantle TAG Hungerford Award. My first novel, Invisible Boys, will be out later this year. But first, for the next few months, I'll also be your host. Today, I'm absolutely chuffed to be speaking to a really talented poet, Caitlin Mayling, about her new collection of poetry, Fish Song. Caitlin is from Western Australia, she moved to Melbourne to complete her BA in 2007, then to Cambridge to complete a Master's of Philosophy in Criminological Research. Caitlin has published poetry and nonfiction throughout Australia, the UK and the US in places such as Best Australian Poems, Prairie Schooner, Australian Poetry Journal, Australian Book Review, Cordite, Westerly, The Australian, Stand and the Three Penny Review. Wow. And that's among others. I haven't listed them all. Caitlin holds an MFA in poetry from the University of Houston and is a previous recipient of the Martin Bequest in Poetry, the Harry Jones Memorial Award, and the John Marsden Poetry Prize. Previous collections from Caitlin are Conversations I've Never Had, which was shortlisted for the Mary Gilmore Award and in the WA Premiers Book Awards, and also her second collection, Border Crossing. Caitlin, that is an amazing CV. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, Holden, and congrats to you
0: again. Thank you so much. You're very kind. Now, I'd love to start talking about Fish Song, which is your third book of poetry. Is that right?
1: Yep, that's my third one every two years.
0: (laughs) Nice on schedule. Fantastic. Now, look, this is a really, uh, I loved it. It is a really powerful collection, and it's packed with uh, a lot of strong and iconic WA imagery. Your earlier collections centred on themes of coming of age and I think Border Crossing was heavily about America. So what drew you to return to WA with the third book?
1: Um, That's a great question. And I think because I'm not actually that imaginative, the most (laughs) obvious answer is that I moved back to Australia. Yep. (laughs) Around the same time I started writing Fish Song. And so I was immediately thrust back into all of my local landscapes, but with this really weird kind of disjunct from having been away for such a few years and trying to kind of relearn it and appreciate all its peculiarities with these fresh eyes.
0: Yeah, and I think like one of the things I noticed with this is that you drew not just on kind of natural WA landscapes, but you really kind of observed a lot of a lot of the built environment and the social environment and, you know, the cultural stuff about WA. It, and it's really quite breathtaking. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit to, to why you did that or or was that intentional or did it just happen?
1: No, that was definitely intentional. And for me, it's because they're not separate. Like um, when mm. we look at the landscape and even if we think that we're seeing, this, for us in WA, this beautiful beach, even if we're on this beach alone, that where you'll want to look at and say, oh, this hasn't been touched by human hands. Well, quite obviously, it has been. So for me, Mm. how we engage with the world around us is also embedded in what you've termed a social and cultural fabric. Mm. So I didn't want to just be writing these landscape poems without ignoring the culture that I grew up in and that shaped how I appreciate this landscape around me. And I wanted to really push myself to say, no, what does it actually mean to live here? And to live here is to live... In community and in culture. And I wanted that to definitely be a part of
0: the book. There are just so many images throughout these poems that really evoke WA, you know, beyond anything else. There's things like, you know, mentioning the Eagles and Dockers games or kids chucking bombies in, in swimming pools or even things, and it's not really WA, but it somehow it fitted with the rest of the poem. You talk about going on a Macca's run. Um, yep. And it just felt like, yeah, you know, like, you know, like poetry doesn't always go there. It doesn't always go to that kind of built um, social life.
1: Yeah, um, I wanted it to have those weird peculiarities, like to have the Macca's run, for example. Just the amount of times that I've driven over the bridge on, like, going to the one freeway. No, I guess we've got two now. Yeah. And there's the pelicans on the the light pole. It's just like this constant. I wanted to highlight like these really small things that really are so particular to WA, and see what they what happened when you put them in poetry, which is meant to be, I guess. Specific as well as being universal.
0: When you read through this collection, do you kind of have a sense of this being your home after having travelled away? Like does it evoke the sense of home for you?
1: Yeah, it really it really does. And even though I still spend quite a lot of time out of WA over in New South Wales now, it definitely feels like home to me. I guess I wanted to think about in the collection what it meant to have that sense of home. Because I know a lot of people, people I grew up with, there's that that's desire to, you know, flee, W-A, never <laughs> yeah. come back, like the, <laughs> the brain drain, mm. and I really wanted to have it be the book about home, but home in all of like the peculiarities and the problems of home, like when you go home for Christmas and you're so excited to see a family and then by the end of it, you're like, well, at least we all survived, <laughs> like that type of home, it's definitely home, but doesn't mean you're always happy to be there, you know?
0: Yeah, no, and, the, and I think some of these poems really express that kind of shift from maybe what used to be to what is now. Something thematically that I wanted to ask you about that I felt there was a focus on the idea of erosion. So not necessarily in the environmental sense, but in terms of this impending grief and loss, particularly with the father figure, and the, there were a lot of references to cancer. I wondered, was it challenging for you to write from that place of trauma? And, and what did you learn from it?
1: Um, that's again a really good question. That it was a weird one for me because my stepdad was actually alive for the whole writing of the book, which was so many years. Mm. And he didn't actually pass away until after the book was written and it was from something completely unrelated to the cancer. So mm. it was like the book when I returned to it, I'm like struck by how it feels like this active Free grieving or erosion, like it's it's this sense of something really slowly slipping away, like this irrevocable Mm. kind of process that I wasn't even necessarily aware of as I was writing it. Mm. Because I just started out writing about environmental erosion, particularly coastal erosion. And then my motivating factor was because my stepdad had been a fisherman up at Savannies And when the fishing restrictions came in, I really wanted him to be able to keep fishing because I knew what it meant to him. But I also wanted, you know, environmental protections and safeguards. Mm -mm. And so (laughs) there was that tension there of wanting to celebrate this, like, way of life that was slowly being eroded, but that I knew if it was allowed to continue would erode something far greater than that. And then... Of course, he got cancer at the same time as I was writing it. So underneath it all, just like actual mm. grief. And I, at the end of it, I guess I was thinking about how we think about climate change or living in an age of like every day we read these articles about, okay, now this many things are extinct. Like mm. we're having to do this grieving in present tense. Yeah, And for me, that's kind of what the book was, grieving in present tense, both for the environment and for my dad at the same time. But I found it to be more nourishing than anything else. Like that's the special power of poetry to me, that it's, or just writing in general, that it's still like this fundamentally positive act of creation, even if what you're creating comes out of grief.
0: Mm-mm. It's that helping of processing through trauma or feelings or whatever you're going through. So I wanted to ask about the arrangement of the poems uh, in the book. I found that the first half of the book seemed to focus more heavily on that built and social and cultural environment, while the second half seemed to want to escape all of that for this natural experience. I wondered if this was deliberate either on your part or on your editor's part. Were you trying to evoke something with the order and the arrangement of your poems?
1: Yeah, I was really happy that you pick up on that because I'm literally in the next month or so going to turn my PhD in and it's not creative PhD, it's a literature PhD and it's on pastoral which fundamentally is about the difference between city and country and escaping city for country and why people like to create that imaginative escape. So oh, I was like I was like, oh, it comes through in my work and <laughs> I think originally when I sent it in and was working with Wendy on it, it was actually divided into sections called like city epigraph and then country and then a return to the city. And with Wendy, with the ordering of it, like I was able to see ways to make that thematically clear without having to very like emphatically cast it into these like section titles and everything like that. So it was deliberate, but we wanted it to also follow a narrative thread as well as just thematic thread that I wanted to give subheadings. And Wendy really helped me with that. And I know it went through four or five rearrangements, Right. And it's just about – because sometimes a poem will be wrong and then you have to rearrange everything to fit that
0: one poem or mm. cut the poem. Mm. I'm so glad that uh, I wasn't imagining things when I said, <laughs> no, when I said you know, Is it was a half city great. and half country. Great. That bodes yep. well. So uh, with the second half, with the part that kind of focuses more on the, the environment and, and being out in nature, I was really interested in that kind of coastal shack setting. And I thought it was not Cervantes, but when I read your acknowledgements I am now guessing it was at Grey and Wedge, the little shack settlements up north. This I thought this was just a really interesting thing. It's an interesting part of WA. It maybe doesn't get spoken about enough, least of all in, in art and in poetry. Did you stay there? And, and if you did, what was that like and how did it influence you?
1: Well, actually, it's another family thing. So I spent half the time writing the book at Savannas and half at Grey. So there's a poem in there, I think it's called Jack's Blessing for Colin and Colin's my husband and his family so weird and so perth. They've had a shack for several decades at Grey where my family fished out at Savanthi's. We're 20 minutes apart now on the new road. Mm -hmm. But I was always like, why would anyone go to the shack? Mm -hmm. And so it was about trying to learn to love this landscape for what it was, but this built human landscape for what it was because in doing so, it was like this act of, love or coming to understand my husband and how he grew up and his life in a different way and now I really appreciate it and it was also very good for me in terms of wanting to deliberately put those pastoral elements in there because I'd go and I'd stay up at the shack at Gray by myself for like a month in winter and I don't know if you've ever been up there Holden but there's literally nothing and so like to heat water I'd have to like use ring burner thing that I call the cauldron outside (laughs) and then try and light a fire to keep warm and you can only run power when it's had enough sun to charge the solar panels, and not at night and so I felt like I was doing this 10 Thoreau Walden situation (laughs) which was really useful for me in times the themes that I wanted but I also really wanted to do it because of just like the precarious nature of the shacks, is that they're constantly under threat mm. both from a coastal erosion, so the sea coming closer and closer, but also that, uh, especially since the Indian Ocean Drive got put in, the government, the successive governments haven't really been able to reconcile how these now very accessible shacks on prime coastal land, which actually happens to be in Nambung National Park, are allowed to be held by people. And so there's a constant kind of back and forth about when they would have to be torn down (laughs) Mm, mm, (laughs) because mm. people don't want them to be kept because originally they were put up as fishing shacks in the 1960s and 70s when there was no road. Mm. But now it's this really weird kind of micro-community that's not like anything else I've ever been part of, but it doesn't have a legal footing at all. So it's it's interesting Mm. from that
0: perspective. No, it is fascinating. And I'm from Jerry myself, so I'm always driving up the new road ever since they built it. And, you know, I see the turn off for Grey and I'm like, I wonder what's down there. And now I've, I've, I've read your book and I'm like, oh, I know what's down there now. <laughs> and now I've spoken to you, I know there's a cauldron as well. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, it's, it's like before the road, every single thing, like, and I think i a line about things having to be shipped in or trucked in. Like, it was just mm. like this. If we think about facing climate change and coming up with hybrid solutions or repurposing and recycling materials we already have, that's what the shacks are, right? Mm. Like they, you can't like chuck them out and get a new one from Bunnings or whatever, or <laughs> build a new house there. Like you mm. literally can only work with the things that are there.
0: Mm. And so
1: I think it's a really interesting ecological model.
0: You know, it's a, it's fascinating to go into and it. it was really fun to read as well. I'm curious about the title of this collection. So you've titled it Fish Song, which is, it takes its name from the second last poem in the collection. And in that poem, there's the repetition of the instruction, don't. And that seemed to kind of resist this sense of restrained grief or, or mourning within the poem. I wondered why you choose this title. Was this like an editor decision or how did you come to that point? Originally,
1: because I'm working on in my fourth book. And that's going to be called Fish Work. And originally this one was going to be called Fish Work. Um, ah. But then I decided that it was, uh, it was more like a song, which is an old type of poetry called Piscatory eclogues, which is like old fishing poems oh, right. little conversations of fishing people. And one of the threads that I was really interested in putting in the book was all the different colloquial landscape speech and repurposing people's speeches. And that to me was kind of the idea of re-singing other people's words. And so to me, it's just Mm.
2: the song.
1: But it's also encircling it Fish work. I felt like there was something mystic about the type of work that the fishing people do that they don't, I think it's in, do you want me to read the poem?
0: Yeah, that would be great. We can definitely have a reading and why not do it now? There's no time like the present. (laughs) Um, It's
1: short and it's got repetition.
0: It's short and it's lovely. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've got it, this will be fish song that you're reading. Wonderful, go ahead.
1: Okay, fish song. Don't think there's money in the fishing. Boats ever only ever let you down. Don't be too kind to deckies. Don't pick the ones who look like they're sleepy. Don't fish over the moon. Don't drop the pots before a storm. Don't turn into a wind. Don't worry about the pool. Don't worry about your old man, he's tough. Don't think it'll be this way forever. Don't remember when it ended. Don't you start. Don't you forget what it took. Don't you know I'd do anything? Don't think there's much left to fish these days. It's kind of like all these folkloric instructions that get put into fishing, like mm-hmm. that made it seem more like a mythic song to me. Like, for example, my sister is desperate to get taken out on one of the boats up at the Vanties now, but because obviously my stepdad's no longer around, she can't go because all um old mates up there all the old men that still run the fishing boats without a family friends won't take a woman on their boat because it's unlucky <laughs> 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 like that's what I mean by don't fish over the moon don't get yep. pop before a storm just like it felt like a song like something you sing to water mm, or mm. something
0: yeah <laughs> no it's um it's a moving poem and it, and it fits well as a title I wanted to ask you though like that You know, your use of language throughout this whole collection is amazing. And and, I I write prose. So whenever I read poetry, I'm like, why can't I be like them? Um, (laughs) I'm always impressed. One of the images I liked, and it just kept staying with me from this collection, was when one of the poems talks about, I'm footballer coming off meth, sad. Like, I just thought that was brilliant. Like, I just, you know, it evoked so much about WA in particular. I just wanted to ask, in one of your poems, you also talk about language. So I wanted to ask you about this. So this particular poem says, if we only need 800 words to function, we have thousands floating between us spun out of nothing. I wondered, how does that idea align with your own interest in language? Is that your thought about language?
1: Good question. Well, I do think about it. I don't have an answer to it. So I guess it, it does align with my own interest in language because I'm, I do wonder about why we have so many different words. And especially, again, thinking about erosion, which is, like, I think, one of the things I was thinking about with that part of the poem. The fact that we are seeing, like, I guess, the slow erosion of kind of our lexical diversity mm. in terms of, I guess, words we. Traditionally had in areas like you read again, you read all these articles about you know children no longer knowing which we're developing at the same time. So we're constantly spinning words out of nothing. So for me, in terms of the book, it is this mix strange mix of like colloquial language, like a footballer coming off the stuff. and then there's in that poem you've got the 800 words to function. There's a heightened scientific language as well and I was constantly thinking about what do these different types of language do and do they perform the same thing and what does it mean to emphasize the sonic quality of one but not the other and because I have such Australian accent, I wanted to use a lot of like really lean into that mm.
2: so that
1: I could really just brag out all the words like town which people make fun of me for but I wanted like a lot of it's flat language that matches settler Australian depictions of the landscape, like flat and same and same and same and same. That's kind of how it's often depicted and to think about where's the beauty in that, like where can we break into song in that.
0: So in addition to playing with language, something else you work with is form and structure, in particular in the poem Recommendation for a Western Australian Coastal Pastoral. What was your ambition in playing with form in that way?
1: Fun. I've written down in front of me. Fun. Work should be fun. <laughs> I'm also really taken by the primary other form I work in besides poetry essay. Mm. From Montaigne means to try, and so I like the idea of working with form in that way, like trying out different ideas. And I think I was also reading a lot of like I would have been reading the ridiculously long heritage report on the Shack settlement, which has a lot of recommendations, and I was like, what would a poem look like if I just (laughs) wrote a poem like it's in government sub-recommendations, and what does that do to the language? What happens if I insert strange poetic language into that form? How does it then feed back against the government language? So I was interested in that, the tension between the different uses of language.
0: Yeah, it felt like a resistance almost. Resisting that kind of bureaucratic red tapey kind of anti poetry. Yeah.
1: Although I do love it. Like I love I love I also love bureaucratic language because I'm like the lot of what you're saying makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs> so I like that. I'm like, Oh, come
0: No, it it worked really well and I loved the playfulness with the form there. Mm. One more question I did have for you, and this is purely just because I want to learn more stuff from writers who are better than me. Um, You're a really successful poet. You've published so many collections internationally. What advice would you give to someone like me who's starting out as an author, like in terms of craft or in terms of building a career? Like, what do we need to do? What do emerging authors need to do?
1: Well, I think you're already on the right track because you've already submitted your work and won something, but in general you know this, you have to do it because you love it first and foremost, because if you're putting pressure on yourself to be successful you probably fall in a hate like if you're trying to map out this is what it means to be a writer and then match that, that's mm. like saying, this is what it means to be a human or this is what it means to be anything else, it's just, you're not going to be able to do it. But I, one of the things to think about is there's so many different ways to be a writer at the moment and so thinking about things like social media presences, which I am genuinely terrible about. Ads, but <laughs> a lot of my friends are good at it. And that is one of the ways that they build writing community. And that's the other thing. Don't feel bad if you don't immediately have a writing tribe or if one develops slowly, but do find people you can show your work to and people you trust to read your work.
2: Mm.
1: And don't be afraid to show people your work. Because I think a lot of people I encounter say, they also teach creative writing at uni, are like, oh, it's too scary, or I'm not a writer, or I'm not good enough. But without feedback, you're not going to get there. So you really do need to have people giving you feedback. And when people give you feedback, be appreciative of them giving you feedback. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. As well. Because otherwise, why would they do that? And when i do go right down, I'll read all the things. Not just what you love and want to do, which is controversial. Other people I know will just say, just read what you love and lean to that. But I also think, why not read what what you hate Mm. (laughs) and then figure out why you hate it? Like, I read Philip Roth's book the other day and I hated it. And it was so well written, but I hated it. So I had to really (laughs) think about why do I hate this? (laughs) Why am I reacting to this? And the thing that I found that forced me to read closely is by reviewing things. And I know mm. that's not always an option for people, but the way that I've really honed my craft and really had to think about what I want to be doing, doing reviews for like, online journals, places like Cordite or other places that take short reviews, and then really kind of, like, having to think about how other people have put things together
0: is, mm.
1: I guess, the thing that's been most to me.
0: No, thank you. I've uh, learned a lot, and uh, maybe I'm going to start hate-reading some books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> only if you've got time though like if your time poor then <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: just read the good stuff um yeah. no no I, I actually think that's really refreshing and i think it's it's true as well you know like you know i will do that sometimes not intentionally but you know like sometimes you read a book and you go yeah and actually you learn a lot from that because you go yeah look i didn't like what they did here and here and here so when i write my book i'm not going to do that you know x y and z um, yeah So actually, you know, I think it's really good advice.
1: Yeah, but also just figuring out, like, maybe you hate something irrationally for some unknown reason. I learned that about myself. I'm like, oh, this is the type of stuff that, like, my dad always used to make me read. So now I hate (laughs) it. But actually, it's okay.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just sets you off. Fantastic. Look, Caitlin Mayling, thank you so much for your time on the Free Mental Press podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I've really had fun. Would you like to read another poem from your book at all?
1: Ah, I would love to. Is there one in particular you like that you'd like to hear read
0: out? Oh, my goodness. Well, I have a whole book here, and if it has a contents, I will pick one
1: yep. and
0: hope it's not like one of the like 12-page poems. No, don't do that. <laughs> okay, the one called, and I hope I pronounced this right, Obad? Obad?
1: Oh. Excellent. That you know, that's actually the one that I had picked out and put on my seat for. If you ordered a poem with Western Australian words in it, uh-huh. like, Here,
0: well, here we go. That's perfect. That's why I chose it because I remembered that was the one with the Macca's run. So, Macca's run. <laughs> okay. So over to you.
1: I'll say what an allbud is. Yeah, the for sure. Morning song of lovers parting in the morning. Perfect. So it's a traditional thing. Allbud. It's a trap. The drive-through lane. Macca's coffee. Your hand. My hand. The river, dirty green and smelling like dead fish. I have woken you to tell you the exact dimensions of my loss. Runde venti, triple shot. Hold your tongue, a seatbelt, tight. No danger of a head-on collision. Double demerit holiday. Business suited. Your purple tie untied. pinstripes, Summer cuff rolls. No ironing. Pelicans each to a pole. Black swan sweet sleep one-legged. Head under wing. Delicate until they hiss or hiss. The windscreen shot through with cracks. 10 years, 12. Still you won't say you don't love me. It's easy. Like two bus stops. 50 metre walk to work. Elizabeth key is going to kill business. Draw tourists. Like how they should have built the bell tower bigger. Like I can now serve a volleyball overarm. You're 10 kilos heavier. 5 kilos lighter. They draw up plans for the freight link. The port looks the same. 13 years. I learn the words for gum trees, forget them. One year, there's daylight savings. That's the year I wake at six instead of seven. Apart from that, I am the same. You don't love me. I love this city. I leave.
0: Wow, and that was Caitlin Mayling reading from her collection Fish Song. Caitlin, that was really beautiful. Thank you for sharing that.
1: Thank you. I would change it now. I would have, like, probably put in Betty's Jetty is going to kill business instead of Elizabeth <laughs> Key, but we can't Betty's go Jenny. back in time. <laughs> oh, that's
0: fantastic. My, my partner calls it Liz Key, just oh. to really just trash Veriation.
1: it up.
0: Variation, <laughs> yeah. Caitlin, thank you so much for your time on the podcast today. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, best of luck with the book release. Okay.
1: Thank you, Holden.
0: Wow, what a fantastic interview. That was Caitlin Mayling, a WA poet, talking about her really amazing collection of poetry called Fish Song uh, out through Fremantle Press. This is one of two collections of poetry coming out this year through Fremantle Press. Next time on the podcast, I'll be chatting with Nandi Chinna, who is the author of the other poetry collection, The Future Keepers. Until next time, Cheers.